I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's totally appropriate. I, I don't want you to be mad. I just, I'm I think mad. that, I think mad. we should just keep it straight for this episode. We will revisit this idea in the future. Can we just agree that that's what we're going to do? Halloween is the perfect, it's the perfect I don't, one to do, to do, to have a theme. Well, I don't, I don't think it's and appropriate. It the reason people are listening is because they want the, the good info. They're like, not necessarily looking for some sort of. Everybody likes Halloween. That's not true. That's not true. Name somebody we know who doesn't like Halloween. Everybody likes Halloween. It's fun. Escape velocity. And strange and frightening sounds echo through the halls. Chris. Whenever candlelights flicker, Chris. where the air is deathly still, that is the time when ghosts are present. Oh my god. Practicing their terror with ghoulish delight. Please don't do this. Robin Hanel is a radical economist. Sorry, everybody. Author and political activist. Yep. He is Professor Emeritus at American University in Washington, D.C., where he taught economics Mm -hmm. from 1976 to 2008. He is best known as co-creator, along with Michael Albert, of a radical alternative to capitalism known as participatory economics. We did agree not to do this. And he is the author of several books, including Looking Forward, Green economics, and most recently, of the people, by the people. Wow. The case for a participatory economy. <laughs> well, that was entirely regrettable. Anyway, so Robin Hanel, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you. So your new book, Of the People, By the People, The Case for a Participatory Economy, posits to offer an example of what a viable alternative to capitalism might look like. But before we get talking about the book and participatory economics generally, maybe we can start with why we need to talk about this in the first place. In short, and I know this is maybe an overly broad question, what is so bad about capitalism? Well, you know, it's easier to answer that question than it was um, eight or nine years ago when we had sort of a booming period in global capitalism, at least in the advanced economies. Um, Or at least it was booming for, um, you know, those in the high-income brackets. You know, we have a a recent reminder of just how bad capitalism (laughs) serves our interests. Um... We had the worst financial crisis in over 80 years. That financial crisis, you know, triggered the worst recession that the advanced economies have experienced since the Great Depression of five generations ago. 
Um, the recovery has been incredibly anemic. Paul Krugman's got an excellent column in today's New York Times saying recovery for the wealthy, that the only people who've recovered in this recession um, are the people that are in are, are the wealthy and, and, and the corporations. That, for the most part, um, the majority of the population um, is still suffering from underemployment. There's been tremendous downward pressure on wages. And for the first time, we have generations living in Canada, the U.S., and Europe who clearly have lower economic expectations. When they look ahead to see what are our economic lives going to be like, what they now see and can expect is that they will do worse than their parents did. And this is sort of a whole new experience, at least here for, you know, for those of us in North America. So there's a lot of recent reminders of just how capitalism can be. And another one that should be added on to this is that the global market economy is literally got us on course to commit ecocide at some point in this century. That as long as we do not curb, you know, fossil fuel emissions dramatically and quickly, we really are going to end up changing the world's climate in ways that, in ways that in some ways that are just unthinkable in terms of how negative the consequences are going to be. And again, it's the global market economy, it's the global market capitalist economy that's the driving force behind this. So I think that, you know, there's all the old reasons that capitalism cannot, it can't deliver on economic democracy. When you work for an employer, it's basically a dictatorship of the employer. He's the one who decides how you're going to work, what you're going to do, what you're going to produce, what you're not. That's not economic democracy. The idea that, you know, we all get to buy things in the marketplace and that provides economic democracy is also sort of a shallow, it's a very shallow sham. It's simply not true that the market system, you know, is orienting our production toward the things that toward the things that people want and the things that people need. So all of the old complaints that it can't give you economic democracy, it can't give you economic justice, are every bit as true as they always were. And the appearance that, well, at least it's going to give us a stable, rising material level of life, it's turned out that that also is something you cannot count on. So those latter reasons, you know, the old reasons uh, that you're mentioning there, those would be kind of the reasons why it's not good enough to just double down on regulation and legislation to govern ethical mores or environmental impact and that sort of thing. Would that be a correct assessment? Yeah, I I think that's correct. And, And here's the way I would put it. I think it is important for people who've gotten fed up with capitalism and say, I know I want system change. I know there has to be a better way for us to go about organizing our economic affairs than the current one. I think it's very important for people who have come to that conclusion not to fool themselves into thinking that there aren't worse and better ways, you know, to run capitalism. Not all versions of capitalism are equally horrific. There's a lot to be gained by competent regulation. The simplest possible example is competent regulation of the financial sector avoided serious financial crises for a period of 50 years in the global economy. It's only when that competent regulation of the financial sector was disbanded and dismantled under pressure from the industry and politicians who allowed them 
to simply get away with it, who removed the restrictions, that's what triggered the financial crisis, and the financial crisis makes for a much worse kind of capitalism. Um, the same thing's true on environmental regulation, that as long as we have global capitalism, the environment is going to be, you know, at risk. However, it's much more at risk absent some of the kinds of regulation that we can put on destroying the environment, even while the, even while the market system is in place. Now, having said that, that don't fool yourselves into thinking that all forms of capitalism are equally terrible. There's nothing to choose between them. There's no lesser or greater evil. Um, the problem is, even the most reformed social democratic version of capitalism, there's two problems with that. The problem that I think many of us have been aware of, many of us who saw ourselves as socialists and who believed in a better alternative, were long aware that even social democratic capitalism is much better than that is compared to neoliberal free market capitalism. Even that kind of capitalism doesn't really provide true and full economic democracy, true and full economic justice, and adequate protection for the environment. It, it's not good enough, because we can do so much better. There's a second reason that the last 30 years, I think, you know, historical experience adds to. The second reason is, take a look at Sweden. That's, in 1975, Sweden reached sort of the pinnacle of the most social democratic, regulated, egalitarian version of capitalism that the world has ever seen. Oh, but they didn't just inch forward from there. They didn't even just stand pat and keep that. That if you allow the corporate market system to remain in place and you simply try and tame it and regulate it, you always run the risk that when the corporations and the, the market ideologues get up ahead of political steam, they can roll back all of your reforms and all of your gains in the twinkle of an eye. And that's exactly what we've experienced in the more social democratic parts of the global capitalist system. A tremendous rollback of 40, 50, 60 years of slow incremental gains. So. If you don't change the system, if you let the market system and the powerful corporations remain, you always are at risk of the kind of rollbacks that have been going on now for 30 years, leading to the kind of situation that Occupy finally pointed its finger at and said, for 30 years, all of the economic progress has been captured. Those productivity gains have been captured by the top 1%. The rest of us have been standing still even before the financial crisis and the Great Recession hit. So I think that's the other reason that that system change increasingly has to be on the agenda of people who are just simply being sensible about assessing what it is that's going on in the world they live in. Okay, so we need a different, more just economic model on which to base our future. How did you first get started working on participatory economics over 20 years ago? The original purpose of going ahead and elaborating and, and putting out in print a model of the, the participatory economic model was to give the lie to something that was being claimed. What was being claimed is that there was no alternative to either 
market system or authoritarian planning. This was the gauntlet that, you know, a very good political economist, a social democratic political economist named Alec Nove, um, he threw down this gauntlet in 1983 in his book called The Economics of Feasible Socialism. And he said in the introduction, he said, look, there are a lot of well-meaning people out there who get upset with capitalism, but they fool themselves and they fool other people. And ultimately, they do unproductive things because they hold on to the myth that we could actually run our economy in a way that either wasn't authoritarian planning, something along the lines of what the Soviet Union and those economies have done, or is a market system. And we developed a model to basically prove that at least at the theoretical level, that is total hogwash. Just saying there's no alternative is not the same. That doesn't prove it. That just basically states what has become a common prejudice, a common myth. Um, we wanted to show that there is nothing at all that is impossible about what we claim is really the dominant economic vision that the early opponents of capitalism all shared, more or less. So that was the original purpose, to demonstrate and prove that this is perfectly possible, and that it would be perfectly possible to do this, and it would be even more efficient. There's ways to deliver on economic democracy, there's ways to deliver on economic justice, and it doesn't have to be at the expense of inefficiency, and it doesn't also basically require us to spend inordinate amounts of time in meetings that have unclear agendas and it's hard to, hard to predict or understand why anything good would come out of the meetings and the discussions. So that was the original purpose, and that remains, I think, the, the principle. If you ask me what good has come of sort of publishing that and continuing to write about that as a possibility, which is what the new book is, the new book is basically saying, look, that model's been out there for 20 years. Um, we've learned some things, and people have criticized in certain ways, and we can sort of answer these doubts and these criticisms, and let's just sort of get on with it, because it is useful to continue to have a discussion about how things could be done quite differently. Now, why is that important when we're fighting in the here and now to sort of avoid ecological disaster and try and sort of save people's economic, you know, economic security and well-being? I think it's important because if you go back in time and look and see when was it that reforming capitalism, when the reformers were most successful, it was during a time period when, the, when many of the reformers firmly believed in the viability of an altogether better alternative. That's why they had no patience with being told, this can't be done, this is the best it is. That's why they fought for more than anybody ever wanted to give them. And that's why they fought as hard as they did. I think being clear that we don't need capitalism, damn it, helps people in the here and now in their day-to-day -day struggles. It helps them be stronger and more committed and convinced that they're right, that real economic justice is a possibility, so is real economic democracy. And that helps them not settle for any less than they absolutely have to at any point in time.
Your cadaverous pallor betrays an aura of foreboding, almost as though you sense a disquieting metamorphosis. Is this podcast actually about economics, or is it your imagination, hmm? And consider this dismaying observation. This podcast has no windows and no doors, which offers you this chilling challenge to find a way out! (laughs) Of course, there's always my way. You know, one of the things I appreciate about what uh, Robin was just talking about Mm -hmm. uh, is his acknowledgement of we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time here. You don't have to discount uh, any efforts to try to improve the lives of all of us who are currently toiling within this framework, within this framework. And you know how much we toil, you and I, toilers hardcore toilers under capitalism we don't have to discount efforts to improve our lot just because we know that ultimately what would be far better for us is a wholesale system change you can advocate for one and work to improve your lot on the other hand um which i think is important yeah there's there's i mean and we are not innocent of this but there's there's generally a macho swagger amongst critics of capitalism or radicals, political radicals to discount the idea that we can enact beneficial reforms within this system. Mm-hmm. It's just, if, if you acknowledge that you're seen to be some sort of a, a reformer, a reformer or weak. yeah, but real lives are affected by reforms. And it's tough, I think, because there is, there is something to the argument that, you know, cause he mentions, early reformers really held on to this idea that yes, there can be something better and that's what pushed them to fight as hard as they did and demand what was thought at the time to be completely unreasonable uh, concessions, which are now thought of as perfectly normal. You know, the weekend, the eight hour workday, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea of a minimum wage, what have you. But at the same time, where did that get those reformers, right? We got these reforms, and like he said, many of them- They get rolled back. Are getting rolled back, they're under attack. So there is something to the idea that that revolution, that system change, is economic or otherwise, is never gonna come so long as, you know, you keep pushing for reforms because they make things incrementally better and more comfortable for people, therefore taking away the incentive to push for that radical change i think there's something to it you mean, you mean there's there's something there's something to the idea that the population is placated by these small reforms that they're like oh the system isn't so bad after all yes well then if the system's not so bad after all isn't that an improvement over what you had before it is but at what point what will have to happen to bring wholesale system change I didn't mean to frighten you prematurely. Hmm? 
The real chills come later. Now, as they say, look alive, and let's all stay together, please. All right, that's enough. Okay, so then tell us a little more about the guts of the model itself. What are its values, goals? How does this whole thing work? Yes, we start with explicit values or goals that we want the economy to achieve. We're saying, well, how do you know how to organize an economy unless you know what you want to accomplish? And we say, look, this economy should provide people with economic self-management. And we very explicitly define economic self-management as decision-making input or power in proportion to the degree that the economic decision is going to affect you. Economies are very complicated, actually. Almost every economic decision is going to affect more than one person, but it's not going to affect everybody to the same extent. So you essentially have this sort of muddy situation that economic decisions affect some people more than others. The goal should be to at least approximately provide decision-making power or authority or input in proportion to the degree that people are affected by decisions. So that was the first that was the first goal. The second was to actually deliver on economic justice. And we provide an argument that says as far as we're concerned, what is a fair distribution of goods and services? Why should anybody consume more than anybody else? Well, if and only if they have put in more effort, if they have somehow personally sacrificed more than somebody else, then it's fair that they should receive somewhat more consumption and compensation. But that, that's the only reason, the only fair reason that somebody should consume more than somebody else is because they sacrifice more. So we're very explicit in our definition of what we think economic justice is and are quite self-consciously designing an economy that would distribute goods and services according to that definition. We also clearly, you know, argue that you, the economy has to be sustainable. The economy has to provide for a variety of kinds of goods and services and lifestyles. So those are the goals, and the principal sort of institutions that, that, that define the economy are workers' councils. You don't have stockholders who own corporations who hire a CEO and then they go out and hire employees to do what they're told. That workplaces are governed by a democratic council of all the people who work there. Every member, everybody who works someplace is a full member in full standing with one vote at the workers' council and that workers' council is sovereign regarding whatever decisions that workplace makes about how it's going to go about things. So we propose workers' councils. We propose consumer councils, neighborhood consumer councils. Neighborhood consumer councils are where individual families that live in a neighborhood will go ahead and say, this is what we want to consume personally. These are the effort ratings and consumption allowances we have because we have underage kids, we have kids in school, we have a retired person in our in our household, they have automatic allowances. We have people working. These people have gotten work, have gotten effort ratings from their workplace that basically permit them to consume at a certain level. So the neighborhood councils gather the personal consumption proposals and also then together with them come up with 
what public goods at the neighborhood level do we want to consume? Do we want new sidewalks? Do we want new swings in the neighborhood park? What kinds of things like that do we... Kind of things that in today, in many parts of the world, are the subject of participatory budgets, where local communities and neighborhoods and cities are being allowed to say, we're going to use, a, we're going to use our taxes in ways we decide to do. So the neighborhood councils would do things like that. The question then is, and this has been the question for, for hundreds of years at a theoretical level, well, is it possible for these workers' councils and these neighborhood councils to somehow decide what each worker council is going to produce and what each neighbor council is going to consume? And our proposal for how to do that is called the participatory planning procedure. And it's very different from the most common conceptions of, well, how would you go about democratically planning a national economy? The common conceptions are, okay, we know these workplaces and these consumers, they're all connected because the cons- what the consumers want to consume has to come from some workplace. So, well, democracy would be each one of these councils sends a delegate to a meeting, and at the meeting they hash it all out. In truth, we think that would be a disaster. We think it wouldn't work. Um, we also think that it really isn't a very meaningful kind of, of, of economic self-management. What people in a workplace care about more than anything else is what they're going to do. And so our proposal is the workers' council make what we call a self-activity proposal. They say, this is what we want to do. Consumer councils say, this is what we want to do. That's their self-activity proposal. Now, you have to have ways... The planning procedure has to work in a way that these self-activity proposals that are made and revised and made and revised somehow will finally achieve a plan that can be carried out as a whole, an annual plan. And we've worked very hard at a theoretical and a practical level to demonstrate the procedures that would allow that to happen. And that's what participatory planning is. It's workers and consumers through their own councils, making self-activity proposals, evaluating those. We have to generate the criteria that you would need to decide, is that proposal coming from a worker council socially responsible? Is it using resources efficiently? Is it too lazy? Are these consumers being too greedy? So the procedure generates metrics that allows the councils to to go ahead and sit in judgment on one another in a way that doesn't require a tremendous amount of time. That's what the participatory planning part of the overall proposal is. In terms of, I'm just thinking about how our listeners would relate to what this economy would look like for them. So going to work every day in a participatory economy, how does, like, is that different than going to work every day now? There, there are some things that are the same, there's some things that are different. So I go to school. I graduate from school. I'm actually going to have a job because it's a planned economy and we're not going to have big recessions. One of the, I mean, I'm not a proponent of authoritarian central planning, but one of the things that doesn't happen in a planned economy is you don't have these periods where for years and years you just have not enough jobs for everybody that's looking for jobs. So you come out of school, and it's time to go to work, and you think about, what do I want to do? Where do I want to work? And you apply. You apply for a job in a workers' council in an industry in a part of the country that you want to. And the workers' councils look at their list of applicants, 
the annual plan is going to tell them how many people of different kinds they are supposed to have. That they they have proposed that they're going to work, they're going to produce certain things, they're going to need certain inputs to do it, and they're going to need a certain number of people with certain skills in order to do that. So what comes out of the planning process is essentially also an employment list. We have to add so many people with these skills. So they'll go ahead and they will choose from their applicants who they wish. So you may not get the job with the, with, with the worker council you wanted because they weren't hiring or they chose somebody else that they like better. Um, so that part, in some sense, looks sort of similar. I go to school. I go out and apply for jobs. I can apply where I want. What if I'm working someplace and I don't like it? Um, why wouldn't you like it? Well, first of all, you might say, well, my coworkers think I'm not working very hard, but I know I am. I'm being under-evaluated. I'm not being appreciated. I'm going to go someplace where somehow the procedure for judging people's efforts is, I think, more fair and more to my liking. Or you might, want to, you, you might simply want to leave and go and live in a different place. Or you might say, look, all the time we're talking about doing this or doing that, and I'm always in the minority. In this workers' council, I get outvoted nine times out of ten. I'm tired of it. I want to go work someplace else that basically I think is going to, where my suggestions and what I am voting as a member of the workplace, we, I, want to, I want to do, you know, is more likely to win the vote. So there's all sorts of reasons people might want to change jobs if they already have them. And when you take a job at a workers' council, there's not a pay rate attached to that. Because the pay is going to be determined after the fact by your co-workers through whatever procedure they set up to decide that some of us deserve to consume more than others based on what we've done here in the workplace. We propose that be left up to workers' councils in their individual workplaces. We expect that different workers' councils will go about doing that very differently. I happen to know that at least for the first 10 years in the Mondragon, they just did it according to ours. They said, we don't really see any need to, to go into this elaborate process of judging whether somebody's working harder than others. We're simply, we're pretty satisfied that everybody's pulling their share, and if somebody worked a lot more hours, well, then that's fine, but we're just going to do it that way. Any council that wanted to do it that way would do it that way. Any council that felt... You know, where the people in that workplace felt like, well, you know, it'd be nice to trust each other that much, but the truth of the matter is we don't. So we're going to set up some sort of procedures where maybe we're going to, whatever those are. But that has to be done after you're working there. That can't be, well, what's my rate of pay going to be if I take this job? It's like a labor market in the following sense. You're free to apply any place you want. It's like a labor market in the sense that the employers who are we're choosing new members of our workers' council, they're free to choose from their applicant list whoever they want and reject whoever they want. But it's not like a labor market in the sense that all this is done with a salary attached to it because the salary can't be known until after the work is done. And that is the basis for your consumption. So you then say, okay, my family needs to consume. We want to consume the following things. Essentially, your effort rating becomes your income, and you consume just like 
you know, out of that income the way you would consume out of your salary income or your salary plus your dividend income check if you're in the top 1% in a, in a capitalist economy. Because the other thing that's different is in your workplace, you have as much vote about every decision about what that workplace is going to do, whether the coffee breaks look like this or that whether the jobs and the, the, the jobs and the tasks that people have to do, how they're grouped. If, you, if this is your job, what tasks do you have to perform and what percentage of your time? All of that is something that is decided by the Workers' Council, just as any differentials in compensation are decided by the Workers' Council. And the Workers' Council is solely responsible for proposing in the planning process, this is what we want to make, this is what we need to do it. Now... Just because they proposed it doesn't mean it's acceptable to everybody else it's, if, if it's not deemed to be socially responsible. But nobody can revise the proposal from, for a workers' council except the workers' council themselves. I'm sure there'd be maybe some people listening who are bristling at the idea of what is essentially their income being judged and evaluated and then allotted uh, by their coworkers, especially if they don't get along with said coworkers. So... You address this a little bit in the book. I'm just wondering, how do you see the dangers it, of uh, exclusive self-interest and you know pettiness being avoided uh, it, under this model? I don't think of a participatory economy as heaven. I don't think of it as <laughs> right. heaven on earth. We are not saints. Um, human beings, for the most part, aren't saints. And yes, we have petty disagreements and cliques develop. One of my colleagues, David Cotts, in a symposium on, uh, on alternatives to capitalism, he raised this issue. He said, well, look, I know in my workplace at the University of Massachusetts Economics Department, we have a faculty council, and we have factions and petty disagreements and vengeances and all sorts of things that go on. And my answer to that was, yes, <laughs> that is real life. And... I can tell you from my perspective that I worked for 33 years at American University. Now, we were not supposed to evaluate one another's efforts. We were supposed to come up, the faculty was supposed to, we had a committee every year, and people rotated on that committee. It was called, a, it was a merit committee. And if somebody's contributions, either in better teaching or more publishing, was more meritorious, that committee was supposed to do that. So notice that committee was not supposed to be sort of trying to identify differences in effort and sacrifice, but differences in the value of the contribution of different faculty members. I thought that that committee did a systematically terrible job and undervalued me for 25 years. <laughs> Those things will happen. What's terrible is if you're in a situation like that and you don't have an escape route. But... Anybody who feels unhappy in the workers' council for whatever reason, that you know, you're being discriminated against in terms of your compensation, you're not being paid attention to in terms of we ought to build the department this way rather than that way. People are totally free to move and move on and totally free to start up new workers' councils with anybody who's like-minded and participate in the planning procedure and obtain the resources necessary to carry out the plans that they're submitting. So we don't have people trapped in situations where, you know, kind, where the kinds of unpleasantness that humans will always generate for one another, unfortunately, from time to time, you know, where there is no escape. 
We find it delightfully unlivable here in this ghostly retreat. Every room has wall-to-wall creeps and hot and cold running chills. Shh, listen. What are your thoughts on what he had to say there, Chris? I wasn't listening. I was thinking about a horrifying death from a guy in a ski mask. No, no. Goalie mask. Why? With an axe. Why would you do that? Chopping up children. It's not even scary. A guy with a goalie mask and an axe chopping up kids isn't scary. Hey, man, that happens at slaughterhouses every day. That's scary. (laughs) It is scary, actually. They wear goalie masks in there? So he talked a little bit about Paracon on the ground in real life. Yep. Lying on the ground. Yeah. That's sort of what we did when we enacted Paracon. That's what I did. I generally laid on the ground at G7. Do our listeners actually know or care that we worked in a Paracon-inspired workplace? No and no. No. Well, we did. We did. When, when, When we ran the G7 Welcoming Committee record label... Um, which at, at various points had uh, between two and five nice. members. It was run collectively. Yeah. Weekly meetings where everybody shared responsibility for decisions and how we we're going to move forward. And But yeah, so w- we were organized loosely under, under Paracon. Mm-hmm. Um, we didn't really, I think, like Mondragon, uh, which he discusses, uh, in one of his answers, you know, we decided to just, we paid ourselves much like that based on hours. We didn't really do much to my detriment. We didn't really do effort ratings. <laughs> well, you'd be a millionaire now <laughs> to determine. And I'd be in a fucking barrio. <laughs> you know, speaking of terrifying, when I read the book uh, of the people by the people, what terrified me there was exactly this idea. Like my, my initial gut reaction imagining a world where this is how I was quote unquote paid was based solely on not on the value of the output of my work, but on the effort and sacrifice I put in it terrified me because I thought if that was the case right now, I and you would be probably living in a lean to made of consolidated CDs. If you were to judge the, but don't you put a lot of effort into what you do? I do, but not compared to someone who like picks up garbage well, or, that, uh, no, no, or a house builder. You're or, talking about the social value. No, I'm talking about actual effort. Like the effort and sacrifice to you say, like, go but out, you, but you're talking physical a, effort now. Swing a hammer. That's for, physical effort. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's mental and emotional effort. And there is, there is. But how many sacrifices do I make? What's the I sacrifice of my life? I don't I know. I sit around in front of a computer with my cat drinking as many coffees as I want coming over here and recording the podcast. Sometimes it doesn't sound like you do much. No, it doesn't. Does it? No. So I would be in some serious fucking trouble. No, but I mean, you'd be evaluated within your workplace. So your work would be evaluated within that, within that context. It's true. But I guess, I guess what I'm saying is it makes sense to me that that is the only, if you want to talk about true fairness and true economic justice and equality, paying people in that manner really is the only solution to that. It makes perfect sense. But because I have evolved 
as a person under capitalism, and this is how I understand the world, it makes me feel instinctively like, don't try to take anything away from me. That's mm. the, that's my first gut reaction, even though I know it's not uh, that's intellectually. My gut reaction is I should get more fucking money for my effort <laughs> and sacrifice. I think some people would have sort of a, a similar visceral reaction to the amount of perceived effort it would take to have these neighborhood consumption councils or worker councils. The extra time added on to, to your current life it would take to organize your workplace, to submit your consumption request to your neighborhood. It, it, it's, it'd almost be embarrassing for many people. Right. I would like 14 bags of chips this week, please. <laughs> you know, you don't want to tell anybody about that, about how many chips you eat. I don't but, know if it would be that specific. I would like 24 king-size boxes of extra small condoms. The obvious objection or the, the predictable objection would be it'd be too time-consuming, too complex. Right. Too much of a distraction from the distractions people love so yeah. much. Like too terrifying. Netflix and sports and drinking and mm -hmm. going to shows and all this stupid shit people do. Mm -hmm. Making podcasts. Making podcasts. But those objections based on complexity don't acknowledge the insane, absurd, unnecessary complexity of, of the society we currently live in. Mm -hmm. The intricacies and inner workings of capitalism are insane. And the, the payoff of taking part in the decision-making process in your own community, having a say, the consequential say. But people don't want to do that. But that's because they have not experienced. That's right. But they and they also assume that things just run smoothly now because they don't have to do anything right now. They just yeah. go to their job for their eight hours, come home, turn on the TV, yep. good night, get up and do it again. If you were to start a system from scratch, and you had to choose this idea of having economic democracy in your workplace and setting up worker councils and consumption councils versus trying to even you couldn't even recreate this capitalist system it's mm -hmm. so fucking it's just a giant bunch of bullshit that nobody can figure out it's totally inefficient it's destroying the planet that would be what you choose to yeah. build towards it, guarant it guarantees a, a segment of the population is perpetually poor and the world dies yeah so why would you build that so pretend you're starting from scratch and try to imagine this before you just think i don't want to be in a meeting talking about who gets to consume what fuck get your head out of your stupid netflix fucking punk show sports asshole you fucking losers smarten up <clears throat> another interesting point that, that struck me is that this idea of you know basically being remunerated based on your effort and sacrifice it is the it's the embodied reality of the myth that is pushed under uh, free market capitalism that right. the harder you work you know if you work hard enough you can achieve anything which is which is you know the big lie of capitalism because it's shown time and time again the majority of what dictates success um, or financial well-being under capitalism has nothing to do with hard work it has almost everything to do with how much money your family had where you were able to go to school because of circumstance the color of your skin you know, depending on when you were born or where you were born, everything but your actual ability to work hard. Right. You know? Because it, you think if you're like a single mother working three fucking jobs, you think you're not working hard, but how far do you get in life? Nothing compared to the trust fund kid who got his 
university paid for and took some job at, in the financial sector where he sits around all day and like hits a fucking couple of keys on a keyboard and makes $20 million a year in bonuses. So, so, so it literally is. It's, this system is. If you want to put in effort and sacrifice, that is how, how you are rewarded. There's no abstract thing there. You know, you work with people, they see you're working hard, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it is the literal equal playing field. I think it's another aspect of human nature to remember the hits and forget the misses in terms of how capitalism works. When, mm-hmm. when the whole pull up your bootstraps myth, everyone will go, but what about, and they'll name one, one guy, guy who yeah. was poor and became the head of some dot-com thing and made a zillion dollars. It's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, the hardest working people I see around the city have nothing yeah relative to everybody else which is exactly why paracon should appeal to the more right-wing libertarian set though of course it won't because their ideology is not actually about freedom all it is is about individual freedom and it completely ignores anything to do based on where they were born and what they have yeah exactly they don't want to give it up to anybody another interesting thing too that i thought of when he's talking about how Mondragon here in Winnipeg, Mondragon Bookstore and Coffee House. They were, again, for listeners who are unaware, long-running restaurant and, and bookstore organized around Paracon principles, you know, collectively run and managed. Um, and Robin is familiar with them and how they decide to pay themselves based just on hours, you know, just assuming, well, we probably all put in about the same amount of effort and work, so we're just going to pay ourselves based on hours and the funny thing i thought was given the state of mondragon now and its recent histories maybe that wasn't the wisest idea no maybe there should have been some judgment going on of different individuals effort and sacrifice in order to determine their pay yes and maybe that would have made a difference in who stayed and who left and what got done around there maybe g7 should have done that too (laughs) It's too late. It's too late Let's now. Let's start it again. Just so we Let's can properly implement. Just so I can be fired within two months. <laughs> and related to that, talking about G7 and Mondragon, I think it's important to point out that organizing your workplace as a worker council is the one thing that even, even as we live under paying each other based on effort ratings, obviously it's going to be you know, in money in the end, but nothing's stopping anyone from doing that. And that's a practical step that anybody can take. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting what could happen if more people took that step and then experienced what workplace democracy felt like and what that could do for pushing these ideas forward. Oh, Oh, you don't have like a scary little bit that you want to read there? You know, something spooky? I can actually just get right back to the interview then. Oh, yeah, I got nothing. How does education and expertise fit into the Paracon work model? To drag out the common example, you know, with the surgeon and the garbage collector may both expend equal effort in a given day, but the surgeon has presumably spent thousands of hours in training whereas the garbage collector has not. Okay, because the surgeon's not going to spend anything on their training. 
all education is free. You apply to educational programs and you're accepted on the basis of the program. The program looks at the applicants and selects the people that the program thinks will be most likely to be successful in the educational or training program, and you don't pay for any of that. So suppose you were somebody who is good in school, you're good in science, you were good in chemistry, biology, you applied to medical school, you were accepted, you get four years of medical school, then maybe you do two more years of, you do all that. None of that is at your personal expense. All of that is at public expense through public education. So you don't have to somehow compensate somebody for, you got no student debt. So you don't have to pay doctors a, a, a lot more than garbage collectors because they started their careers, you know, $200,000 in debt, whereas a garbage collector who starts at the age of 18 starts with, with zero debt, presumably coming straight out of high school. Right, right. So you, you, and, and notice that you also, for the first time, can actually have a meritocracy in terms of your selection criteria for educational programs that doesn't end up treating people unfairly. Everybody is still going to be rewarded in consumption based on their sacrifices and efforts. The problem with when you have a labor market, what happens is if you have public education, take, take a look at Canada or the United States today. Or, or uh, you know what, a better example is Finland because they still don't have tuition in Finland. Um, everybody goes to university free. So. It's rather ironic, though, because you have some people in Finland who have many more years of education than others because they were better students, they got accepted in the program. But they didn't pay for that. That was all paid for out of general taxpayers' revenue. And yet when they go into the labor market, they're going to get much higher salaries than the people who have less education. In the participatory economy, you have free public education. But if I end up with more education than you, it doesn't mean that my lifetime earning expectations are higher than you. We don't have to pay bad debts because nobody has any, and we don't have to pay just because somebody has more education than somebody else. So let's talk about the environment and sustainability a little bit. You discuss in the book how the Paracom model has sort of built-in protections or consideration for the environment. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, yes. One thing is that the participatory economics model, there's three kinds of planning that goes on. There's an annual production plan. There's also an investment plan. And then there is what you might call a long-run plan, a development plan, you know, planning, you know, about what kinds of things we're going to be doing 20, 30 years down the road. And any economy that does development planning actually has an opportunity to look far enough down the road to understand that protecting the environment, reducing carbon emissions, building up wind and solar and renewables, et cetera, is something that absolutely makes sense. And it is in the long-run development planning process that we can make that happen. In a market economy, there is no plan. So there's no way to make you know, long-run planning about how to change the economy so it's not environmentally destructive, there's no way to do that in a market system. The truth of the matter is we have a fossil fuel industry that has basically been in control of energy policy you know, for the past hundred years. 
And part of the reason that we can't get reduction in carbon emissions is it's not just the market system that is preventing us from responding to, to climate change right now. It's the market system in which the fossil fuel industry globally is literally doing everything in its power to prevent the political system um, from doing something that's even remotely sensible. But in any case, you have long-run planning, which is probably the major thing that allows, it, that, that allows us to engage in the kind of decision-making that's necessary for protecting the environment in the long run. There's a problem with market economies um, in terms of generating some signals about what economists call externalities. Anytime that somebody releases a pollutant into the atmosphere, it's causing damage, but in the market system, that doesn't get taken into account. An automobile, the, the producer produces it, the seller buys it. They make the decision about, am I going to buy it, am I going to produce it, and how much are we going to charge one another? They don't take into account the fact that making this car puts sulfur dioxide into the air and causes acid rain. Driving this car puts CO2 into the atmosphere and causes climate change. They don't take that into account because those are effects on all sorts of other people, not the buyer and the seller. There's been a well-known problem that, you know, dating back to the early part of the 20th century, an economist named Alfred Pigou said, whenever you have externalities, markets don't do things efficiently because they don't take the effects on parties who are external to the market decision, buying, selling, decision-making process. In markets, the, the entire decision-making process is done by the buyer and the seller, and they have no interest in taking into account effects on others, whether positive or negative. Well, Pagu proposed in the 1920s, well, there is a theoretical solution to this. Whatever the damage is that's being caused by the, the SO2 that's being released from Detroit when we make cars, we should put the magnitude of that damage as a tax and we should add to the tax the magnitude of the damage that's coming from climate change when people are driving cars around. So you want to change the price of the cars so it reflects these costs that have been unaccounted for, these external costs that the market process doesn't account for. And he's absolutely right. If you put a tax on everything produced in a market economy that was exactly equal to the magnitude of the external effects that are ignored, in the market price, if you put that tax on everything, then you would actually have a sensible, efficient way of handling pollution. But there's a problem. The problem is, well, I know I should put a tax, you know, on automobiles. I know I should put a tax on burning up carbon. But how, how high should the tax be? The problem is that in a market system, the market generates no signals about how high taxes should be. So in theory, if you put the correct Tegovian tax or emissions charge or pollution tax or green tax is what they're now called, if you put the right tax on in a market economy, then you would have fixed the problem. But the problem is there is no signal about how high the tax should be. And of course, there's going to be a lot of argument over it. Because anybody who is going to pay the tax is going to argue it should be lower, and anybody who's damaged by the externality is going to... So you have contesting interests that have every reason to lie and, you know, disagree with one another. And you also have a system in which you literally have to put taxes on everything. 
So how can you put taxes on everything, and how can you figure out how high and low they should be? And in a practical sense, that's impossible. Well, one of the ingenious things about the participatory planning procedure is it contains a mechanism that provides reasonably accurate quantitative estimates of just how high these charges should be for emitting pollutants. And it does that by allowing the groups that are negatively affected um, to basically determine how much they're going to allow and how much they're going to charge people for doing it. So I don't want to go into detail, but I do, I, I do like to flag that, that there's an unanswered problem in market economies, which is how high would you put your pollution or your green taxes? How would you know how high they should be? And this, the participatory planning procedure actually is the only procedure I know of that allows for a reasonable procedure that would give you quantitative estimates that aren't just something that anybody could argue with. Okay, so what about some real-world examples? Obviously, you know, us being from Winnipeg, we're familiar with uh, with Mondragon, bookstore and coffee house, who've been going for over a decade now, almost 20 years, actually. Um, you mentioned participatory budgeting earlier. What are some of your favorite sort of real-world examples uh, of people using some of the principles of Paracon today? I think in small ways and to varying degrees, a lot of activities that now sometimes are simply called the new economy. The person who is most, you know, sort of, who's best known for writing about the sort of growth and emergence of something called the new economy is somebody named Garel Paravit. He and I have been friends for a long, long time. We were both, we were both based in Washington and actually knew each other in Boston before that. He's written extensively about how the old economy increasingly isn't working, the political system is essentially both bankrupt and it's either in stalemate or bankrupt, but that that doesn't mean that problems aren't being solved and problems are in, and, the, and the solutions aren't being, aren't being discovered. But it's sort of under the radar. And so he has sort of gone and cataloged all of the ways in which people, largely through desperation, are developing just new and different ways of going about economic activity. And you mentioned that. I mean, one of the first ones he will mention is he'll talk about co-ops, and he'll talk about the growth and the spread of co-ops. And he'll talk about, well, we don't necessarily have workers' co-ops, but that doesn't mean that you don't have innovations in worker participation in privately owned firms. That, you know, you get something that is, no, it's, it's not your firm, you don't get one vote just because you're a worker there, but there's an awful lot of things that fall somewhat short, but move us in the direction where we don't simply have an employer dictatorship. I think some of the best examples are what he calls sort of entrepreneurial municipalities, where increasingly you have city governments that have been completely abandoned by state and, and federal policies and left to sort of just solve problems on their own well, city governments increasingly, you know, are, are doing things that are the kind of way that we have to do it. So community-supported agriculture, the, the participatory budgeting that actually is functioning in, in certain countries to a very, very large extent. These are examples of people just going out and fixing things when 
the system refuses to and increasingly fails us. None of these are a full participatory economy. And I don't, you know, I don't criticize them for not being such. They're all local initiatives. Um, they're all things that are done in a particular place. There is no country or national government that has said, um, we want to change our economic system and we want to go about planning in a very participatory way. I spent some time in Venezuela, three or four different consulting visits, you know, trying to convince and talk with various government agencies down there about how they were going to solve the problem of you now have the whole sector of your economy you call the social economy. How are you going to manage it? Everybody is still struggling. There's no real-world example of a country that has embraced this. And yet, I do agree with Garel Peravitz that largely in light of just how badly the official system, the official global economy is failing people, that people should not be discouraged if they knew just how much innovation and new economy was bubbling up from below. And I think that the... And what is it that characterizes these bubbles? It's either more environmentally sensible or it's more democratic in terms of the decision-making procedures that people are using, participatory budgeting being an excellent example of that. Or in some ways, it's just more egalitarian and fair. You know, it's not just leaving people to be destitute. It's taking care of people. So I think when you look at the sort of distinguishing features of various parts of this new economy that is growing, in Scotland they call it the common wheel. That's the name they have for it. In Venezuela they call it the social economy. In the U.S., Garl Perovich has been calling it the new economy. It has different names, but it functions differently from the corporate profit-driven market system. And it is growing, and it is the hope, and I think participatory economics is essentially, in some ways, the logical culmination of if you could take what you're doing to its logical extreme, isn't this the way the whole system would operate to be consistent with what you're trying to do sort of on a limited basis in a limited area? Last question for you. We're big fans of sci-fi and speculative fiction over here. And right. we're interested to see uh, your and Michael Albert's names appear in Kim Stanley Robinson's latest book, 2312, where the galactic economy is organized under a Paracon model. We were just wondering, do you know Kim Stanley Robinson? And do you ever look to speculative fiction for interesting ideas about humanity's future? Well, interesting questions. I have never met Kim Stanley Robinson. I would love to. He wrote to me uh, about 15 years ago, and it was after he had written his Mars trilogy, um, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars. Well, I had not read them at the time, but I got an email from him about 15 years ago, and he said, you know, I just came across this book that you and Michael Albert wrote called uh, Looking Forward, Participatory Economics for the 21st Century. And I wish I had read it before I wrote my Mars Trilogy, because there's a part of my Mars Trilogy where some of the people on Mars, um, I describe them as sort of trying to operate and setting up a kind of anarcho-feminist economy. And I write about how it works, and 
I would have actually done a better job of writing that part of the book had I read your Looking Forward book first. So I wrote him back and said, look, um, I'm not a big science fiction reader. I have read Ursula Le Guin, and I have assigned, you know, on numerous occasions to my comparative economic systems classes uh, that this possessed. And I really appreciate that novel as sort of a utopian novel that playing with the ideas of how things could be very different, what it would be like to live in a very different kind of economy. I think that's where the value comes. So, but I have not read your Mars trilogy, but I'm going to sit down and read it right now, which I immediately did. I sat down and read it, and I got to the part that he was talking about, and I said, yes, this is the idea, and yes, I know exactly why you say you could have done a more compelling job of explaining <laughs> how it worked if you had read this first. So I lost track of him, and he lost track of me. And somebody recently said to me, well, you know, in, the, in his new book, there's, there's a lot of talk about participatory economics. So again, I went out and bought myself a copy, read to the place where he was talking about it. And this time what I thought was, yes... It's even more featured here, but you know, I wish you'd seen the new book. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's still got something wrong. <laughs> that, is, time, that is very funny. This time he's actually saying it is a participatory economy, and he actually references, you know, our model. And, yeah. I just, and my reaction was, gee, I wish that this time he's got some stuff wrong still, and if I could just have gotten him a copy of, of the people by the people, I think he would have appreciated that. I, I'm convinced he'd like a copy of the book, if I would, and he'd be happy if I mailed it to him, but I don't know how to do it. So maybe somebody can solve that problem. I'll be happy yeah, to pay maybe. for the copy if anybody can figure out how to get it to him. All right, so the book is called Of the People by the People, The Case for a Participatory Economy. Uh, I think it's eminently digestible at about 160 pages. So we encourage all of our listeners to grab a copy and learn more about what a just, humane, and efficient economy might look like. It is. It's, it's more brief than other presentations. It's certainly more up-to-date. I think it responds to various doubts and worries that people have expressed over the past 25 years. It's not rhetorical. You don't have to be an economist to read it. You don't have to be a leftist to read it. It's just sort of common sense. If we did things this way, what would happen? And think it through together. It, it was intended to be, you know, readable by anybody that just has an interest in the subject. Excellent. Well, I hope that uh, I hope that everyone listening will take up the challenge. Thank you so much for being with us today on Escape Velocity Radio, Robin. And good luck up there in Canada. Um, you got a nasty government. You better do something about them. We're working on it. Well, someone's working on it. <laughs> All right. Best of luck. Okay. Take care, Robin. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's it for episode 14 of Escape Velocity Radio. Thanks for bearing with us. And Chris's ridiculousness. I apologize. The show is produced, recorded, ah, and... Ah, there you are. And just in time. Jesus There's Christ. a little matter I forgot to mention. Beware of hitchhiking ghosts. They have selected you to fill we out We want your feedback. 
email us at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com or leave us a voicemail on Skype at username Escape Velocity Radio. To join the discussion about this episode or to check out the show notes, visit our web visit our website at escapevelocityradio.com. Now, I will raise the safety bar and a ghost will follow you home. If you're not already, please subscribe to the show in iTunes or sign up for our email list to be notified when each new episode is available. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and SoundCloud. Those links and our email sign-up form can be found on our website at escapevelocityradio.com. If you should decide to join us, final arrangements may be made at the end of the show. Ah! <laughs> this thing on?